0: Chapter Ten, Part Two of How I Found Livingstone. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Read by Anna Simon. How I Found Livingstone: Travels, Adventures, and Discoveries in Central Africa, Including Four Months' Residence with Dr. Livingstone, by Sir Henry M. Stanley. Chapter Ten, Part Two, to Marera Ukonongo. On the 28th we arrived at a small snug village, embosomed within the forest called Benta, three hours and a quarter from Ugunda. The road led through the cornfields of the Wagunda, and then entered the clearings around the villages of Kisari, within one of which we found the proprietor of a caravan who was drumming up carriers for Ufipa. He had been halted here two months, and he made strenuous exertions to induce my men to join his caravan, a proceeding that did not tend to promote harmony between us. A few days afterwards I found, on my return, that he had given up the idea of proceeding south. Leaving Kisari, we marched through a thin jungle of blackjack, over sun-cracked ground, with here and there a dried-up pool, the bottom of which was well tramped by elephant and rhinoceros. Buffalo and zebra tracks were now frequent, and we were buoyed up with the hope that before long we should meet game. Benta was well supplied with Indian corn, and a grain which the natives called Chorocco, which I take to be vetches. I purchased a large supply of Chorocco for my own personal use, as I found it to be a most healthy food. The corn was stored on the flat roofs of the tembays, in huge boxes made out of the bark of the mtundu tree. The largest box I have ever seen in Africa was seen here. It might be taken for a titan's hat-box. It was seven feet in diameter. And ten feet in height. On the twenty ninth, after travelling in a southwest by south direction, we reached Kikuru. The march lasted for five hours over sun cracked plains, growing the blackjack and ebony and dwarf shrubs, above which numerous ant hills of light chalky coloured earth appeared like sand dunes. The Mukunguru, a Kisavahili term for fever, is frequent in this region of extensive forests and flat plains owing to the imperfect drainage provided by nature for them. In the dry season there is nothing very offensive in the view of the country. The burnt grass gives rather a sombre aspect to the country, covered with the hard-baked tracks of animals which haunt these plains during the latter part of the rainy season. In the forest numbers of trees lie about in the last stages of decay, and working away with might and main on the prostrate trunks may be seen numberless insects of various species Impalpably, however, the poison of the dead and decaying vegetation is inhaled into the system with a result sometimes as fatal as that which is said to arise from the vicinity of the upas tree. The first evil results experienced from the presence of malaria are confined bowels and an oppressive languor, excessive drowsiness, and a constant disposition to yawn. The tongue assumes a yellowish, sickly hue, colored almost to blackness. Even the teeth become yellow and are coated with an offensive matter. The eyes of the patient sparkle lustrously, and become suffused with water. These are sure symptoms of the incipient fever, which shortly will rage through the system. Sometimes this fever is preceded by a violent shaking fit, during which period blankets may be heaped on the patient's form, with but little amelioration of the deadly chill he feels. It is then succeeded by an unusually severe headache, with excessive pains about the loins and spinal column, which presently will spread over the shoulder-blades, and, running up the neck, find a final lodgment in the back and front of the head. Usually, however, the fever is not preceded by a chill, but after languor and torpitude have seized him, with excessive heat and throbbing temples, the loin and spinal column ache, and raging thirst soon possesses him the brain becomes crowded with strange fancies which sometimes assume most hideous shapes before the darkened vision of the suffering man float in a seething atmosphere figures of created and uncreated reptiles which are metamorphosed every instant into stranger shapes and designs growing every moment more confused more complicated more hideous and terrible Unable to bear longer the distracting scene, he makes an effort and opens his eyes, and dissolves the delirious dream, only, however, to glide again unconsciously into another dreamland, where another unreal inferno is dioramically revealed and new agonies suffered. Oh, the many, many hours that I have groaned under the terrible incubi which the fits of real delirium evoke! Oh, the racking anguish of body that a traveller in Africa must undergo! Oh, the spite, the fretfulness, the vexation, which the horrible phantasmagoria of diabolisms induce! The utmost patience fails to appease, the most industrious attendance fails to gratify, the deepest humility displeases. During these terrible transitions, which induce fierce distraction, Job himself would become irritable, insanely furious, and choleric. A man in such a state regards himself as the focus of all miseries. When recovered, he feels chastened, becomes urbane and ludicrously amiable. He conjures up fictitious delights from all things which but yesterday possessed for him such awful portentous aspects. His men he regards with love and friendship, whatever is trite he views with ecstasy. Nature appears charming. In the dead woods and monotonous forest his mind becomes overwhelmed with delight. I speak for myself as a careful analysation of the attack, in all its severe, plaintive and silly faces, appear to me. I used to amuse myself with taking notes of the humorous and the terrible, the fantastic and exaggerated pictures that were presented to me, even while suffering the paroxysms induced by fever. We arrived at a large pool known as the Zewani after a four-hour's march in a south-south-west direction, the 1st of October. We discovered an old, half-burnt camby, sheltered by a magnificent kouyu, sycamore, the giant of the forests of Unyamwezi, which after an hour we transformed into a splendid camp. If I recollect rightly, the stem of the tree measured thirty-eight feet in circumference. It is the finest tree of its kind I have seen in Africa. A regiment might with perfect ease have reposed under this enormous dome of foliage during a noon halt. The diameter of the shadow it cast on the ground was one hundred and twenty feet. The healthful vigour that I was enjoying about this time enabled me to regard my surroundings admiringly. A feeling of comfort and perfect contentment took possession of me, such as I knew not while fretting at Unyanyembe, wearing my life away in inactivity. I talked with my people as to my friends and equals. We argued with each other about our prospects in quite a companionable, sociable vein. When daylight was dying and the sun was sinking down rapidly over the western horizon, vividly painting the sky with the colours of gold and silver, saffron and opal, when its rays and gorgeous tints were reflected upon the tops of the everlasting forest, with the quiet and holy calm of heaven resting upon all around, and infusing even into the untutored minds of those about me, the exquisite enjoyments of such a life as we were now leading in the depths of a great expanse of forest, the only and sole human occupants of it. This was the time after our day's work was ended, and the camp was in a state of perfect security, when we all would produce our pipes, and could best enjoy the labours which we had performed, and the contentment which follows a work well done. Outside nothing is heard beyond the cry of a stray florican, or guinea-fowl, which has lost her mate, or the hoarse croaking of the frogs in the pool hard by, or the song of the crickets, which seems to lull the day to rest. Inside our camp are heard the gurgles of the gourd pipes as the men inhale the blue ether, which I also love. I am contented and happy, stretched on my carpet under the dome of living foliage, smoking my short meerschaum. Indulging in thoughts, despite the beauty of the still grey light of the sky, and of the air of serenity which prevails around, of home and friends in distant America, and these thoughts soon changed to my work, yet incomplete, to the man who to me is yet a myth, who, for all I know, may be dead, or may be near or far from me, tramping through just such a forest, whose tops I see bound the view outside my camp we are both on the same soil, perhaps in the same forest, who knows, yet is he to me so far removed that he might as well be in his own little cottage of Ulva? Though I am even now ignorant of his very existence, yet I feel a certain complacency, a certain satisfaction, which would be difficult to describe. Why is man so feeble and weak that he must tramp tramp hundreds of miles to satisfy the doubts his impatient and uncurbed mind feels. Why cannot my form accompany the bold flights of my mind, and satisfy the craving I feel, to resolve the vexed question that ever rises to my lips? Is he alive? O soul of mine, be patient, thou hast the felicitous tranquillity which other men might envy thee sufficient for the hour is the consciousness thou hast that thy mission is a holy one onward and be hopeful monday the second of october found us traversing the forest and plain that extends from the zivani to Manyara, which occupied us six and a half hours the sun was intensely hot but the matundu and miombo trees grew at intervals just enough to admit free growth to each tree while the blended foliage formed a grateful shade The path was clear and easy, the tamped and firm red soil offered no obstructions. The only provocation we suffered was from the attacks of the tsetse, or panga, swart fly, which swarmed here. We knew we were approaching an extensive habitat of game, and we were constantly on the alert for any specimens that might be inhabiting these forests. While we were striding onward at the rate of nearly three miles an hour, the caravan, I perceived, sheered off from the road— resuming it about fifty yards ahead of something on the road, to which the attention of the men was directed. On coming up, I found the object to be the dead body of a man who had fallen a victim to that fearful scourge of Africa, the smallpox. He was one of Oseto's gang of marauders, or guerrillas, in the service of Kaziba of Unyanyembe, who were hunting these forests for the guerrillas of Mirambo. They had been returning from Ukonongo from a raid they had instituted against the sultan of Mbogo, and they had left their comrade to perish in the road. He had apparently been only one day dead. Apropos of this, it was a frequent thing with us to discover a skeleton or a skull on the roadside. Almost every day we saw one, sometimes two, of these relics of dead and forgotten humanity. Shortly after this we emerged from the forest and entered a muka, or plain, in which we saw a couple of giraffes, whose long necks were seen towering above a bush they had been nibbling at. This sight was greeted with a shout, for we now knew we had entered the game country, and that near the Gombe creek, or river, where we intended to halt, we should see plenty of these animals. A walk of three hours over this hot plain brought us to the cultivated fields of Manyara arriving before the village gate we were forbidden to enter as the country was throughout in a state of war and it behoved them to be very careful of admitting any party lest the villagers might be compromised we were however directed to a camby to the right of the village near some pools of clear water where we discovered some half-dozen ruined huts which looked very uncomfortable to tired people after we had built our camp the Kerangosi was furnished with some clothes to purchase food from the village for the transit of a wilderness in front of us, which was said to extend nine marches, or 135 miles, he was informed that the Mettemi had strictly prohibited his people from selling any grain whatever. This evidently was a case in the exercise of a little diplomacy. He was informed that the Mettemi had strictly prohibited his people from selling any grain whatever.' This, evidently, was a case wherein the exercise of a little diplomacy could only be effective. Because it would detain us several days here if we were compelled to send men back to Kikuro for provisions. Opening a bale of choice goods, I selected two royal cloths and told Bombay to carry them to him, with the compliments and friendship of the white man. The sultan sulkily refused them, and bade him return to the white man and tell him not to bother him. Entreaties were of no avail, he would not relent, and the men, in exceedingly bad temper and hungry, were obliged to go to bed supperless. The words of N'Jara, a slave-trader, and parasite of the great Sheikh bin Nasib, recurred to me. "'Ah, master, master, you will find the people will be too much for you, and that you will have to return. The Wamanyara are bad, the Wakonongo are very bad, the Vazavira are the worst of all.' You have come to this country at a bad time. It is war everywhere. And, indeed, judging from the tenor of the conversations around our campfires, it seemed but too evident. There was every prospect of a general decamp of all my people. However, I told them not to be discouraged, that I would get food for them in the morning. The bale of choice cloths was opened again next morning, and four royal cloths were this time selected, and two dotes of Merikani and Bombay was again dispatched, burdened with compliments and polite words. It was necessary to be very politic with a man who was so surly and too powerful to make an enemy of. What if he made up his mind to imitate the redoubtable Mirambo, king of Uyowe? The effect of my munificent liberality was soon seen in the abundance of provender which came to my camp. Before an hour went by, there came boxes full of Choroco, beans, rice, matama or dura, and Indian corn, carried on the heads of a dozen villagers, and shortly after the himself came, followed by about thirty musketeers and twenty spearmen, to visit the first white man ever seen on this road. Behind these warriors came a liberal gift, fully equal in value to that sent to him, of several large gourds of honey, fowls, goats, and enough vetches and beans to supply my men with four days' food. I met the chief at the gate of my camp, and bowing profoundly, invited him to my tent, which I had arranged as well as my circumstances would permit for this reception. My Persian carpet and bearskin were spread out, and a broad piece of brand-new crimson cloth covered my kitanda, or bedstead. The chief, a tall, robust man, and his chieftains were invited to seat themselves, They cast a look of such gratified surprise at myself, at my face, my clothes, and guns, as is almost impossible to describe. They looked at me intently for a few seconds, and then at each other, which ended in an uncontrollable burst of laughter, and repeated snappings of the fingers. They spoke the Kinyamese language, and my interpreter Maganga was requested to inform the chief of the great delight I felt in seeing them. After a short period expended in interchanging compliments, and a competitive excellence at laughing at one another, their chief desired me to show him my guns. The sixteenth shooter, the Winchester rifle, elicited a thousand flattering observations from the excited man, and the tiny deadly revolvers, whose beauty and workmanship they thought were superhuman, evoked such gratified eloquence that I was fain to try something else. The double barreled guns, fired with heavy charges of power, caused them to jump up in affected alarm, and then to subside into their seats convulsed with laughter. As the enthusiasm of my guests increased, they seized each other's index fingers, screwed them, and pulled them, until I feared they would end in their dislocation. After having explained to them the difference between white men and Arabs, I pulled out my medicine chest, which evoked another burst of rapturous sighs at the cunning neatness of the array of vials. He asked what they meant. "'Doa,' I replied sententiously, a word which may be interpreted medicine. "'Oh, ah! Oh, they murmured admiringly. I succeeded, before long, in winning unqualified admiration, and my superiority, compared to the best of the Arabs they had seen, was but too evident. "'Doa, doa,' they added. "'Here,' said I, uncorking a vial of medicinal brandy, "'is the Kusungo Pombe, white man's beer.' take a spoonful and try it, at the same time handing it. Acht, acht, oh acht, what, eh, what strong beer the white man have, oh, my throat burns. Ah, but it's good, said I, a little of it makes men feel strong and good, but too much of it makes men bad and they die. Let me have some, said one of the chiefs, and me, and me, and me, as soon as each had tasted I next produced a bottle of concentrated ammonia, which, as I explained, was for snake-bites and headaches. The sultan immediately complained he had a headache, and must have a little. Telling him to close his eyes, I suddenly uncorked the bottle, and presented it to his majesty's nose. The effect was magical, for he fell back as if shot, and such contortions as his features underwent are indescribable." His chiefs roared with laughter, and clapped their hands, pinched each other, snapped their fingers, and committed many other ludicrous things. I verily believe, if such a scene were presented on any stage in the world, the effect of it would be visible instantaneously on the audience, that had they seen it as I saw it, they would have laughed themselves to hysteria and madness. Finally, the sultan recovered himself, great tears rolling down his cheeks, and his features quivering with laughter. Then he slowly uttered the word, Kali, hot, strong, quick, or ardent medicine. He required no more, but the other chiefs pushed forward to get one wee sniff, which they no sooner had than all went into paroxysms of uncontrollable laughter. The entire morning was passed in this state visit, to the mutual satisfaction of all concerned. "'Oh,' said the sultan at parting, "'these white men know everything.' The Arabs are dirt compared to them. That night Hamdallah, one of the guides, deserted, carrying with him his hire, twenty-seven dhoti, and a gun. It was useless to follow him in the morning, as it would have detained me many more days than I could afford, but I mentally vowed that Mr. Hamdallah should work out those twenty-seven dhoti of cloths before I reached the coast. End of chapter 10, part 2